You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about spinal muscular atrophy, or SMA. Joining me is Dr. Elizabeth Kachula from the Division of Neurology, also at CHOP. Thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. So let's start with reviewing the pathophysiology of SMA. I'm not a neurologist, so correct me if I get anything wrong, but it's a genetic disorder that's characterized by progressive loss of motor neurons in the anterior horn. So since I'm not a neurologist, Tell me what that actually means in terms of the signs and sort of the distribution of weakness that you see in SMA. Sure. So spinal muscular atrophy is really a neurodegenerative disease. And I think sometimes we don't like to use that terminology when we're talking about a disease that affects young children. Mm. Um, But it really does cause progressive loss of these motor neuron cells in the anterior horn of the spinal cord that control all of our motor functions. Mm. And so it causes progressive weakness over time. And motor neurons can't divide or replicate. And so once those motor neurons die, we don't have any way of kind of bringing them back. Okay. Um, and so the typical pattern that we see in SMA is where we have proximal more than distal muscle weakness. And so typically the first signs that you'll see are really around the hip. So problems lifting the legs up off the bed mm-hmm. or getting up off the floor and older kids will usually be the first signs. Mm-hmm the distal muscles tend to kind of be spared until much later in the disease. Um, Eventually you will see the muscles involved in facial strength, facial uh, expression, swallowing also be affected, Um, but eye movements are only very rarely affected and then only very late and very severe disease. Okay, so those facial, facial symptoms are later on. The earlier things that you were talking about are more notable in terms of lifting yourself up, like getting off of the floor. That's the Gower sign, is that right? Yeah, so really those big muscles that we kind of talk about. So the ones around both the shoulder and the hip are often kind of the first signs that we see. Um, And in older kids, you'll be able to see that that's problems getting up off the ground, jumping, climbing stairs. But in babies, it's things like problems eating their toes, you know, things that we expect them to normally do developmentally uh, around the age of four or five months. And we mentioned, or we just both said, that this was genetic. So how is it inherited? So it's an autosomal recessive disease. So you're missing two copies of the SMN1 gene. Unlike a lot of other autosomal recessive diseases where you have total absence of a protein, SMA is caused by having insufficiency of the protein. And so the protein is called SMN, or survival of motor neuron. Okay. It was very aptly named for right. kind of what it does. Um, And we say it's insufficient because survival of motor neuron protein is essential for early development. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have any survival of motor neuron protein, it's an early miscarriage and you wouldn't even know about it. it. Uh, But in humans, and interestingly also in bonobos, (laughs) they're bonobos. Okay. (laughs) Uh, 
there's a copy of the SMN gene, so that there's two copies, SMN1 and SMN2. And SMN1 makes almost 100% functional protein, mm-hmm. and SMN2, because of a mutation at a splice site, makes 90% junk and only about 10% of functional protein. Mm-hmm. But it's that small amount of protein that allows the individual to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but also allows kind of the disease to happen because right. there's enough protein there to allow early development to happen, but not enough to kind of keep those motor neurons alive throughout life. Got it. And why does it progressively get worse? Is it just because over time more of those anterior horn cells are affected by the, the junk protein? So it's not getting affected by the junk protein. It's not getting enough of the good SMN protein. So it's not a toxin like we see in some other neurodegenerative diseases. Mm -hmm. It's really the fact that even though SMN is expressed ubiquitously throughout the body, motor neurons are most sensitive to the amounts of it that they have. So somebody who's a carrier for SMA, who we would predict to kind of make 50% of normal SMN protein, Mm -hmm. doesn't have any symptoms at all. Mm -hmm. But somebody who has SMA, who only has copies of the SMN2 gene, and most commonly two or three copies of it, Mm -hmm. is making maybe 20% of the normal protein that we expect, and that amount is just insufficient to keep the motor neurons alive. And so you do get this progressive motor neuron loss over time. So how common is this? How many people are carriers or how many people end up having the actual disease? So the carrier rate is quite high. It's between 1 in 40 and 1 in 50 in most ethnicities. And it's really very widespread. So you see it across all races and ethnicities. Hmm. Um, And so that leads to about 1 out of every 10,000 live births having SMA. That's a lot higher than I would have expected, actually. So it's hard because the most common type of SMA is SMA type 1, and untreated, these children never learn how to sit on their own, and they're either dead or need full-time respiratory support by the age of 2. And so unfortunately, when you have a disease where so many of the children who are affected die early, the prevalence of it can be quite low, even though the incidence is a lot higher than you would think. Mm -hmm. That's a a good point. And they're kids who, because they're in the hospital a lot, or they may be in special facilities that we may not see as much, so it's not on our radar, too, in the general population. Yeah, and I mean, it is still a rare disease, so Mm -hmm. most pediatricians won't see many, Um, but as we'll kind of talk about, it's now one of those things that's kind of a can't-miss diagnosis. And because this is inherited, we were just talking about the genetics of it, can you test for SMA prenatally? So not only can you, but it's recommended that you should. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has recommended prenatal screening for SMA. Universally. Universally, since 2017. Um, There are some kind of important limitations, I think, to know about that. Um, So over 95% of mutations that cause SMA are caused by double deletions of the SMN1 gene. But that leaves 5% that are caused by uh, spelling changes that are caused by point mutation. And so most of often the the screening testing is just looking for that deletion and looking to see how many copies of SMN1 there are. So it will miss the point mutations. And screening testing is also not very effective in African Americans. They are much more likely to have two copies of SMN1 on one chromosome. And then they may look like they have two copies overall, but really they have two copies on one chromosome and zero on the other. So the sensitivity of carrier testing in African-Americans is only about 70%. 
Um, so even though we recommend kind of this prenatal testing, it's still not 100%, and it is just a screening test, right. and there will be lots of cases that are missed. Okay, that's good for people to know that just because our OB colleagues are doing a good job in the screening doesn't mean that we aren't going to pick up cases ourselves mm-hmm. in pediatrics. And I think sometimes people are like, oh, I had my screening test, it was negative, I don't right. need to worry about it, mm-hmm. and that definitely decreases your risk, but it doesn't right. make it zero. Right, good for us to know. There are different types of SMA, so explain to us the differences between the subtypes clinically. So clinically, SMA is diagnosed kind of based upon its severity, when it presents, and how severe it is in terms of what motor milestones you're able to kind of obtain. Mm -hmm. So type 1 is the most common, and these children usually present within the first few months of life with progressive hypotonia and weakness, Mm -hmm. and they never learn how to sit. Type 2 never learns how to walk, but does attain the ability to sit, although they often will find uh, their sitting becomes more unstable over time. Okay. Uh, type 3 learns how to walk, but may lose the ability to walk over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest predictor of what type of disease you have has to do with your copy number of SMN2. So the more copy number of SMN2 you have, the more likely you are to have a more mild disease. Okay. So most individuals with type 1 have only two copies, and most with type 3 have three or four copies. But we can't never determine from the copy number alone what type of disease you have. Mm-hmm. It's just a guidance to kind of help predict it. Okay. So thinking about infant development, you just mentioned those motor milestones of maybe not sitting or not walking or walking that then regresses mm-hmm. and becomes more difficult. So what are other early signs or what should we be thinking of maybe when we see an infant um, who's having trouble sitting? There could be lots of other reasons why they're having trouble sitting besides SMA. So what should really raise a red flag to refer for an evaluation for SMA? So I think the biggest thing is, one, these children are extremely low tone. Mm-hmm. And so when you pick them up, they'll just kind of collapse. They won't attempt to kind of hold themselves horizontal at all. Okay. Um, and really trying to look at how weak the children are. Mm -hmm. And so one of my favorite descriptions of an infant with SMA type 1 came from a general pediatrician who put that even though his he was really mad, his arms and his legs stayed on the bed. Okay. That's a a great description. (laughs) Which I thought was just a great description because it truly captured the fact that the kid was weak and was unable to kick and lift his legs off the bed. And so when you're looking at these infant cases, really trying to kind of get a sense of that proximal weakness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I already mentioned this, but you know, most infants this age are eating their toes. These kids are so weak that they can't lift their legs all the way up off the bed. Mm -hmm. And so that's something kind of early on to look at. Um, The other red flags, particularly for type one, are tongue fasciculations um, and areflexia. And so if you're seeing a child who's hypotonic, you're concerned that they're weak and you can't get their patellar reflexes, that should trigger an urgent call to neurology. And you mentioned, too, for the, the other types that present a little bit later, some regression almost, like maybe they were sitting, but now it's unstable, or they were walking, but now they're having trouble walking. We certainly are trained that any regression is abnormal, but uh, specifically in these motor milestones, maybe that should also make us think a little bit about SMA. 
Yeah, I think that regression always kind of has to kind of carry red flags. And I think that's always hard in neurodegenerative diseases where you're also dealing with normal development. Right. Because you have a point until they cross over when they actually have loss of skills. So even if you're kind of seeing the distance from normal continue to get bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so in SMA type 2, oftentimes they will have rolled a couple times and then they seem not to do it as much. Right. Um, and they may have sat more stably and now they're needing to kind of prop themselves up a little bit more can kind of be early signs. Um, and those type two children, you know, lots of kids who have central low tone won't want to bear weight when they're standing, but when you test them laying down, they have good leg movements Mm. and the SMA two children will be very weak and they won't have that same quality of leg movements. The other things that we look at to get a proximal arm strength are seeing how high they can reach up for toys when you hold them in a sitting position. Okay. Kids that are weaker, they'll only be able to reach out directly in front of them and may not even be able to fully extend the arm, mm-hmm. um, whereas normally kids will be able to reach up over their head. Right. And so that's a really good way to kind of assess that proximal arm strength to see if there's weakness there. And we're talking about this as a motor disease. So just to be clear though, Children with SMA are developing normally in their language and other milestones while this is happening. So cognitively, the vast majority of these children are very bright. And so it's really an isolated motor delay. Um, In type 1, children struggle to speak just because their facial weakness is so significant. But cognitively, they're very smart. So I have kids who using eye gaze are doing math problems and starting to spell. Um, So the the classic thing is somebody who's very floppy, weak, but alert, Mm -hmm. uh, interacting appropriately um, without any other cognitive limitations. So we're talking a lot about how this looks clinically, but how, when we do refer to you, how do you diagnose SMA in patients? So most cases of SMA our clinical suspicion is fairly high when we see them. So we're seeing significant proximal weakness, significant hypotonia, areflexia in most of the younger kids, although I think it's important to know that in some of the type 3 patients who have gained the ability to walk, Mm -hmm. sometimes their reflexes are down but not absent. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we have high concern, the first step is really genetic testing. Um, It's highly sensitive. It's how we kind of confirm this. And most of the time, we don't really want to waste time with lots of other testing. In the past, a lot of us would have done an EMG or a nerve conduction study, but that can take so long to get completed. Um, Whereas the genetic testing, if we request it urgently, we get results within 48 hours and we can easily get the results within a couple of weeks. Great. Um, So I know there are a lot of new treatment options available and you were talking about how this is a progressive disease and once you lose those motor neurons, you're not gaining them back. So it sounds like that's why early treatment is probably so important in this disease, right? Because you want to help improve prognosis, but tell me about kind of what the options are and what that looks like. Yeah, so early treatment is really essential for exactly the reasons that you said. Once the motor neurons are gone, there's nothing we can do to bring them back, Mm -hmm. but we can help rescue the motor neurons that are sick. Um, So currently we have two FDA-approved treatments for spinal muscular atrophy, and maybe by next year we'll have a third. Um, And all the treatments that I'm talking about help to increase the amount of SMN protein that we make. And so the first medication is nusinersen or spinraza that was approved about three years ago. 
Um, and this is very cool technically. It's an anti-sense oligonucleotide that helps to block that splice site on SMN2. So we get more good protein from the bad copy of the gene. Um, it's a little bit hard to give because it's given via lumbar punctures. Oh, and yeah. so there's six lumbar punctures over the first year. Wow. And then it's every four months for the rest of your life but it dramatically alters the course of the disease. Okay. And so you're taking a neurodegenerative disease, putting almost out a big stop sign. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, it's like you're rescuing those sick motor neurons, getting them healthier. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, we are seeing improvements in their overall strength and function. Mm -hmm. uh, the other treatment that was just approved in May of this year is uh, Zolgensma. It's actual name is Onisemnogene Abaparvivec. Not um, you say that one. That was a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is a intravenous gene therapy. Okay. So this uses adeno-associated virus number nine to basically infect the cells with a copy of DNA that continuously makes new survival of motor neuron protein. Mm -hmm. And SMA was a good disease to target because motor neurons don't divide. Uh -huh. So if you're able to transfect those cells, they should be continuously expressing SMN, hopefully forever. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, and so while the initial clinical trials of that, in that study were very small, the improvements were huge. So they're given this one time? One time. Okay, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so there are lots of side effects and lots of safety monitoring because right. you're injecting a massive amount of virus, and so you can get an inflammatory response afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have to treat with steroids to help kind of avoid that. Um, but the effects that we see afterwards are really massive. Um, it's only approved right now for children under the ages of two. Okay. So it doesn't work for our older patients. Right. Um, but in new diagnoses in young patients with type one and type two in particular, many families are electing to go there because of how it's given. Right. Um, but importantly, we don't actually know which treatment is most efficacious or whether or not some patients might respond better to one treatment or the other. And you said there are some new things on the horizon too? Yeah, so there's a new medication, Rizdaplam, uh, which is likely to go into the FDA soon for approval. And it works the same way that Nusinersen does in terms of altering the SMN2 processing, but it's a pill and taken orally. Okay. Um, so in some ways would have some advantages there. Right. That's, those are all great things that are options for some patients. Um, and it's good to know, like you said, because we can hopefully catch patients early and help their disease not progress as quickly as it would have otherwise. Yeah, and the other thing we're trying to do in order to capture some of these kids sooner is it's now on the recommendations of disorders to be tested on the newborn screen. Mm. Um, but that's very slowly coming out state by state. Okay. So Pennsylvania just started on March 1st, 2019, testing on the newborn screen, um, but it's very slowly kind of coming out. So that will hopefully increase... Uh, you know, the ability to diagnose these children early because in some of the studies when we've diagnosed children before they really presented with symptoms, their development early on very closely parallels normal development. Wow. But also just another screening test. So 
even with it on the newborn screen, we should still keep this in the differential for children who are presenting with a motor delay. So the newborn screen tests just for that common deletion, and so it'll still miss the 5% of cases that are due to point mutations. Right. And certainly, even though we're starting to see newborn screening, it's going to depend what state you are in, whether or not you had the newborn screen test, right. and when your birth date was. So we're still seeing children, you know, in Pennsylvania that have SMA type 2 who were born before... Right. The screening was available. Okay, good for us to keep in mind too. So if you were talking to a primary care pediatrician, which you are, what would be your top three takeaway points that you want us to know about SMA? So the biggest thing I think in terms of thinking about the infants is no reflexes, low tone, can't lift the legs up in the air. Mm -hmm. Please call your friendly pediatric neurologist okay. because when we hear from you, we know that we need to get that patient seen urgently. Right. This really is a disease where waiting weeks or months to kind of get the diagnosis really changes the outcome. And studies have shown that there's usually a four-month delay in diagnosis of SMA type 1 from parents' first concerns until when they get that diagnosis. Wow. So we're trying to do as much as we can to kind of speed that up. And I'm happy to see five healthy babies for that one that I catch early. Right, great. That's good to know. Um, in terms of the later diagnoses, I think it's good to kind of keep that on your differential, um, particularly if you're seeing any loss of skills. That's always a major red flag to kind of get kids seen early. And the last thing I would say is not to kind of consider some of these negative screening tests as being truly negative, mm -hmm. that you still have to have a very high index of suspicion in those cases. But I think knowing that those screening tests are there is important because I'll say I did not know that it was routinely being screened for <laughs> already prenatally, and I didn't know it was added to the newborn screen, even though I review newborn screens almost every day. <laughs> so thank you for pointing those things out. Uh, it's good, good for us know. to know that that screening is happening. Yeah. Too. So where can we find you? How can we send patients to you? And sort of what is your clinic at CHOP? doing with SMA? Yeah, so our CHOP neuromuscular clinic has been really active in SMA, and we were sites for the studies for Nusinersen and for Zolgensma, um, and we really operate by the team approach, yeah, because treating is not just these expensive medications, right. it's physical therapy, it's occupational therapy, we're getting all of our patients in the pool where they can move better, okay. taking care of all of their respiratory needs, so I think really making sure these patients have a nice multidisciplinary team we have to take care of the whole patient, the whole family, right. and that's when we see the best outcomes. Great. And I think the families appreciate knowing that your whole team has expertise in that disease because yeah. these are, like you said, rare diseases. So. No, it's great. I mean, some of the work that our therapists have done has really kind of been leading the way for lots of other people so that we have specific aqua therapy groups where sometimes we have physical therapy and occupational therapy working together with these patients. Great. And it's pretty awesome to kind of see in this setting of a, what used to be the worst diagnosis that I could give. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm seeing these kids standing on their own, sitting on their own, things that I never thought were possible. Right. Um, and so they're not cured, right. but they are doing so much better. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so exciting to kind of, we love SMA clinic days now mm -hmm. because we get to see kids doing better, yeah. um, which is really wonderful. Great. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for these patients and for teaching us a little bit about this disease so that we know what to look out for and when to refer. Thank you. Thank 
you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.